Oh, wait. You learned um, Cree and Stony. Do you want to teach us how to say hi in Cree or hello? Yeah, so I'm not a fluent speaker, <laughs> but <laughs> um, it's Tanse. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to You Creates Podcast Many Different Birds. Broadcasting on CJSW Radio, where we will hear authentic stories from special guests from all backgrounds and bridge the gap between non-Indigenous and Indigenous communities, with a special focus on the Canadian healthcare system. Before we begin, I want to acknowledge the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy comprising the Siksiga, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, including the Chiniki, Bear Spa, and Good Stony First Nations. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Today we have a special guest, Carolyn Horwood, who is a fourth-year Bachelor's of Health Science honors student majoring in Health and Society with a concentration in Sociology, and a Bachelor's of Arts student majoring in International Indigenous Studies at the University of Calgary. Her research interests include Indigenous health equity, medical school education, International Indigenous film, and sexual health. Carolyn is additionally involved with sexual violence prevention and sustainability initiatives and is a member of the Scholars Academy. So thank you so much, Carolyn, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. And before we start, did we miss anything when introducing you? I think it's just important going into these conversations to note that I am of settler heritage, of settler ancestry, so I am an uninvited guest on Treaty 7 territory. I've lived here my whole life. That being said, um, you know, I do enter Indigenous health equity as an outsider. Just due to that, I can't speak on behalf of Indigenous communities or on behalf of any Indigenous peoples at all. Um, I can just speak on what I know, really. We know in your bio, you mentioned that you had a thesis on Indigenous health data sovereignty um, to design an effective system to characterize Indigenous data on healthcare. Do you want to kind of go more into depth about what that is? I think that title, that short description might be a bit, um, just as the thesis has shifted, not necessarily as accurate anymore. My thesis is focusing very specifically on investigating Indigenous perspectives to implementing an Indigenous identifier within Alberta Health Services um, health database system. And as a, I'll say, offshoot of that, we are also exploring how to promote Indigenous uh, health data sovereignty within Alberta. I'll note an identifier is not being implemented. It's not, we're just trying to understand whether an identifier can improve the quality and access to Indigenous health data for Indigenous communities. Do you have like any any like identifiers right now that you're like kind of focusing on or you're still trying to look for them right now? Um, I guess I'll explain a bit more what specifically I mean when I mention an identifier. So Canada is known for excellence in quality and quantity of public health data available for its citizens. But Canada does stand out among nations with colonized Indigenous populations as having extremely poor quality and quantity in addition to availability 
of indigenous health data specifically. So what that means is that health outcomes for indigenous individuals and communities aren't tracked very effectively. Um, and there's no standardized system within Canada to go about doing that. There's no governmental recommendation for how that should proceed. So what we're trying to understand is how we could improve that quality and access to Indigenous health data as a whole. And one way that in which that could be done is the implementation of an anonymous Indigenous um, identifier. So ident tying health outcomes to like we would connect certain cases to, um, oh, this was this occurred within an indigenous community or um, whatever that may look like. I, I can't really speak on results that haven't been <laughs> that haven't been put forth yet, but just seeking to understand specifically what how indigenous communities feel about potentially implementing an identifier, what are the potential benefits, drawbacks, what ways could we do this in that are, good and would prioritize safety and health equity for Indigenous communities? Uh, who, how can we ensure that Indigenous communities have ownership of this data, first and foremost? Um, I, among other <laughs> areas of inquiry. So this thesis was under your as a major in a double major in indigenous. This is my honors thesis for my Bachelor of Health Sciences honors. So how would like what would you learn from it and would you recommend this for students coming in? I have about two months left of my thesis. I've learned so much. I can't even really speak to everything that I've learned, but it also comes from experience in the Bachelor of Health Sciences program as a whole. I definitely attribute a lot of my learning to the skills that the BHSC program really strives to put forth in their, within their students. During this thesis, I think I've gained a lot more real-world understanding of how Indigenous communities face immediate barriers to accessing healthcare, what those kind of visually look like, because you, you can read all the literature about barriers that are faced by different communities, but getting to speak to people directly is certainly, I think, the best way to understand people's experiences. Um, I've also, I think, really come to appreciate this notion of relationship as being a priority within Indigenous um, research as a whole. Um, and I'm, I would hope that that notion expands to other areas of research as well. Uh, would I recommend this program specifically, the thesis um, as a whole? Yes, I think that people are gonna do what's, people are gonna choose what's right for them. It might not be right for everybody, but for me, it's been really life-changing, honestly, to be able to um, engage with the opportunities that the BHSC program has provided for me. Doing an honors thesis has exposed me to so many practical skills that I never would have been able to face before. I have so much satisfaction from the research that I do. It's extremely fulfilling. I, I've been really lucky. That's good. That's great to hear. What got you interested in conducting, like, you know, you have to make like a thesis, basically, like what made you want to, I guess, study into like Indigenous health? I think that it was a culmination 
of a lot of different factors. So I got involved with the indigenous leadership and engagement in the Yukon program in my first year as an undergraduate student. And additionally, in my medical science 203 course, which is this introductory course in the Bachelor of Health Sciences program, we looked at HPV as kind of our disease of the semester. And when we got to the health and society portion, we looked at how HPV vaccination uptake differed within the general Canadian population versus uh, Northern Inuit communities, which was very fascinating. And I think really revealed to me the extent of the healthcare disparities for Indigenous communities in what we now call Canada. Those experiences working together just led me to wanting to get involved more with community-based research, research within um, with equity-deserving communities. Um, I started working as a research assistant in the Office of Indigenous Local and Global Health in the Cumming School of Medicine after my second year. And that was looking more so at medical school curriculum related things, but I think that that set a really strong basis in the sphere of community engaged work as a whole um, that led me to seek out the specific honors thesis that I'm pursuing right now. Oh, interesting. I really liked how you said um, equity deserving communities. I really like that word. It's it's kind of important. I feel like the I I guess not a lot of people kind of look at it like that. And even when you mentioned we don't have a lot of public health data for indigenous communities. I mean, I haven't looked into it, but I can see why they would not have accurate data too, I think. Like I don't think it's up to date. Even if they do have data, I don't think it's accurate of all the communities. Like if it is it encompassing of every single community in Canada or is it just looking at certain parts of Canada? On that note, there is this problem with pan-indigenizing data, and by the term pan-indigenizing, I mean calling something indigenous and by doing that meaning that it applies to every single indigenous community or indigenous person. So this problem of, you know, having a small, very small sample of data from maybe one specific community and saying, you know, there's a problem here, and then taking that data out of context and reporting it as indigenous communities all across Canada or the world or whatever have this specific problem um, is, I, I think, extremely problematic. And I, I think the literature would agree with me for a number of reasons, right? Um, just resource allocation. Nobody knows where to, where to put um, resources to target that problem. People gain a misunderstanding of, you know, at least a stereotyping it's just pan-indigenizing data is extremely problematic and I think a lot of people not necessarily that this is a conscious bias but kind of have this understanding just due to I think lack of education that all indigenous communities are the same or very extremely similar um, in Canada a lot of people hear the term indigenous and think that they have this picture in their mind of what an indigenous person is and that's every single indigenous person when there's an extreme amount of diversity even within treaty 7 territory of languages cultural practices of course there are like there can be many similarities 
between different groups. And I think that um, Sean Wilson's Research is Ceremony, it's a great book, does a good job of highlighting many of the shared experiences of Indigenous people. But um, it's very important to note that data is community, it has to be community specific in order for it to be truly representative. So I would say that there is a cultural barrier. There are systemic barriers that exist preventing Indigenous people from feeling safe even to walk into clinics. The level of racism that Indigenous peoples might be risking subjecting themselves to um, is an immediate deterrent for many to um, access healthcare. And on that note, there is definitely a lack of funding into community-specific healthcare initiatives that aren't simply based on the Western idea of medicine, but that really focus on integrating Indigenous ways of knowing, being, and doing into the healthcare practice. Because, like, yeah, you did... Yeah, because you did mention systemic barriers, but I feel like systemic barriers is very, it's like an umbrella term in a way too. But like if you were to choose, I would say maybe like top three, do you, th in your opinion, do you think are the top three biggest barriers? It's difficult to answer a question like this because every single barrier is intertwined with one another. I can't say that it's important to target transportation initially, when racism within the healthcare system is another barrier that exists, or distance from, so geography as a social determinant of health in this sense, um, distance from a well-stocked medical clinic or a clinic that provides vaccinations for children or whatever, whatever the health action that an individual is seeking. I think that this is definitely another umbrella term, but just anti-racism as a whole, practicing anti-racism goes a long way because it looks at the system and um, identifies what barriers exist because of colonization or um, aren't necessarily working to overcome or improve equity for Indigenous peoples that are experiencing lack of access due to um, the trickle-down ongoing effects of colonialism. That's an interesting question though actually like um, realistically I feel like no one even if like you're just a regular citizen I feel like there's a lot about the healthcare system that you just don't know where to go how to access resources what's available honestly I feel like there's like a new like doctor position or like a specialist position opening up it's you don't know what each specialist does what they are to be honest do you think like accessing it initially and knowing what is out there is like a really i wouldn't say i think it is it is a barrier but do you think how 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 have you seen through your research or just like in your classes how have you seen that kind of impact and trickle down i think that speaking on that knowledge piece specifically I think there's two sides to this. One, I think that health data literacy is poor in the population as a whole. People don't know where to find their data. People don't really understand how it's collected, what it's used for, where their data is being stored. 
I think that um, increasing health data literacy in general is a very positive goal to achieve. Um, just improving people's as uh, people's under personal understandings of where their health data is being stored, how it might be used, I think would additionally promote some questions from people into, well, if only this data is being collected, how, how are, you know, when a statistics organization or governmental statistics organization reports that there's been X amount of cases of this condition I have, but I've never I've never disclosed that within this province, so am I not being included? So um, I think that just as a whole would be a very positive thing. I think um, in Indigenous communities as well, it can be extremely positive to improve health data literacy. But there's this other side on education about the importance of upstream health data collection as a whole, as a tool for, for prevention, that I think is important to be educating healthcare every stakeholders within the healthcare system on whether those are researchers whether those are healthcare aides physicians whatever just improving the seriousness of understanding the importance of accurate representative reporting so i came across this um, article so there was this paper by tara harman and Mohan Kumar, if I'm saying those names right, which was a survey that provides an overview of how Indigenous people's health care was impacted during the COVID-19 pandemic, so as of right now. And these were data from 2021 survey. And just a side note and a disclaimer, the survey includes First Nations living off reserve and Métis and Inuit in the provinces. So it cannot be generalized to First Nation people on reserve and Inuits in the territories. So um, one of the findings they found was that they were more likely, likely to have problems scheduling mental health services. So First Nation people and Métis were about, according to them, twice as likely as non-Indigenous people to report pandemic-related scheduling conflicts for mental health or addiction therapy and counseling. So from that, what do you think are the biggest gaps you've seen in the healthcare system? Would you say there's like a loss of trust? Loss of trust is a huge one. There's a very well-documented history of Indigenous peoples being abused or taken advantage of within health research, within the healthcare system. Well-documented cases of racism within the healthcare system that's led to the unfortunate deaths of Indigenous peoples, um, preventable deaths of Indigenous peoples within healthcare facilities. So I think that there is mistrust, um, but that mistrust is not necessarily placed without reason. I think there's additionally a lack of cultural competency within healthcare services to understand the differences that Indigenous peoples may be facing when experiencing a health ailment or a lack of good health, right? For mental health services specifically, there may not be many mental health professionals that are trained specifically to understand how to respond correctly to somebody who is Indigenous, who who has connection to the community, doesn't have connection to their community, who may want to bring in an elder to be part of their healing or may want 
access to um, like attending sweat lodges or whatever that may be. And I know that for every Indigenous community, strategies are different. And I know you mentioned the survey does not apply to um, on-reserve First Nations peoples, but I think that this lack of cultural understanding is really prevalent within healthcare as a whole and mental health definitely. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of priority attended to understanding and promoting um, that competency within healthcare. Even speaking to Indigenous competency within the healthcare system, gaining competency in what it means to be a Métis person because Métis identity has been largely contested. It's been a, a political a political issue even. And that may be a cause of mental health distress for many Métis individuals. Um, there's a lack of understanding of Inuit culture, of Inuit customs, of Inuit ways of living. All those things likely contribute to a lack of, let's say, adequate care and trust. I know you did, like, you worked as a research assistant, um, and you looked at, like, medical school information and stuff. Like, I feel like the best way to target, like, healthcare practices would be to, I guess, maybe even, like, incorporate a class to learn about those competencies you were talking about and to include, like, cultural and linguistic competencies in your healthcare practice. So, like, through that position, like, what kind of things did you notice or what do you hope to, like, kind of target in the future as like future recommendations or directions? I looked specifically at community-engaged learning when I was doing that research. So community-engaged learning is a type of medical school pedagogy in which medical students are connected to communities, community organizations, um, and they work within the community or with the community over a certain period of time lots of um, reflection involved within it, prioritizing relationship building, etc. Something that I'm hoping will be achieved with community-engaged learning in the future is improved physician representation and healthcare worker um, involvement within high-need equity-deserving communities. The Northern Ontario School of Medicine is a great example of a medical school that trains their medical students to represent the health equity-deserving communities of Northern Ontario and um, some of Quebec, I believe, as well. I, I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself to be an expert in the field of medical school curriculum, but that's definitely what I can speak on. Um, so, according to that, do you think there's healthcare workers, or how do you think healthcare workers who directly interact with patients should address this issue? If we're speaking for um, improving Indigenous health equity specifically, accessing resources by Indigenous communities and Indigenous individuals about anti-racism and improving practice um, for Indigenous peoples, I think, is very important. I think that acknowledging personal pre-existing biases and working to understand how those can be shifted is very important. Speaking kind of from a higher up level of healthcare workers individually, I think that healthcare systems need to prioritize anti-racism training for healthcare workers. It's kind of a systematic thing, as you, as you mentioned, medical schools as well. That's an important area, but all healthcare programs, right? Because there are many healthcare workers that 
aren't physicians, um, as we all know, that additionally are obviously engaging with patients very regularly, and sometimes, oftentimes, even more so than physicians. So I think that schools in general um, that are working with people that are engaging in health do need to be prioritizing a level of anti-racism training and indigenous cultural competency from indigenous-based perspectives specifically. Do you think that like we should incorporate like anti-racism trainings and make them mandatory for like undergraduate students who are in like the health related degrees? Do you think like it would be beneficial as a whole? Because I feel like the education that I received in, let's say, like elementary school, high school, A is not representative. It's not accurate, I would say, to be honest, too. Like I took a course recently in like I would say a year ago, actually. And I learned more in that one course during a week than I did in my entire elementary time. So if we're speaking specifically on improving the situation of Indigenous health equity even, we can't just say that it's only healthcare workers that have a stake in whether racism exists or not within the healthcare system. There are investors at play. There are business people that are working within the healthcare sector. There are environmental scientists that are called in. There are statisticians, mathematicians, whatever you could name any discipline. And um, they are all connected to health in some way. Even if you cannot directly tie a discipline to the healthcare system, every individual on this planet engages with the health of themselves and with the healthcare system whether that's a lack of healthcare um, or not, everybody does engage with, with healthcare. And I think that within the healthcare system, if we're, you know, in an ideal world, everybody receives, you know, widespread education on <laughs> um, all the things. But I think that if we're looking at the healthcare system as a whole, identifying the real key stakeholders, um, which obviously are healthcare workers, but also um, the many other disciplines that come into play when we consider healthcare, I think that anti-racism training would be um, valuable. Do you think maybe, yes, that would be valuable, but do you think maybe the healthcare workers are not even aware of this issue? Are we acting ignorant in that way? I think it's possible that some healthcare workers might be unaware or uneducated, especially considering the vastness of position that can be held within the healthcare system, absolutely. But I do think that there is responsibility organizationally. Like, this is not an issue that's unheard of to people. The, like, let's think about the news story of the discovery of the unmarked graves. That is something that was extremely widespread news. We now have a national um, Day for Truth and Reconciliation. There's all these things that are improving public awareness of the history of colonization. There may be individuals who are unaware or uneducated, um, absolutely. And I think that, you know, with every issue, you can't be completely versed. <laughs> at the organizational level, I would find it hard to believe that at the organizational level, nobody had heard, nobody knows um, about the even just that Canada is a colonized nation. It is kind of ignorance mixed in with apathy. Yeah, that's a better word. Oh, wait, you learned um, Cree and Stony. Do you want to teach us how to say hi in Cree or hello? 
yeah so i'm not a fluent speaker but (laughs) um it's tansay and i i'm i'd like to apologize to any creepies creep people listening um i know i don't have the accent completely down but it's like hi how are you it's kind of like how are you doing it's not it's not just hi yeah Yeah. tansay tansay Tansay. okay and what about in stony uh so a traditional stony greeting um would be amba wastich amba amba wastich amba wastich and i thank Corey and terry from my class that i took i apologize to terry if he listens to this yeah. for my pronunciation <laughs> that's actually really cool that you took like language courses and and ufc actually offers them too which is interesting so they run them usually it depends on the language but they'll run stony like once every two years type of thing yeah so hopefully obviously the frequency increases yeah um but student interest is obviously a uh, factor in improving the frequency of these courses so would highly recommend for anybody to take them the courses are excellent i think language learning as a whole is just incredibly important for expanding worldview i think it gives you such a important insight into other cultures as well um it's not really something you can understand until you start to learn another language is how representative languages can be of ways of being as a whole Mm -hmm. i know like oral traditions and storytelling is super important so i think like even having classes from ufc or you didn't even have to be from ufc but like just having classes in general i think it's important for people who have lost touch with their culture their language to reconnect and learn more from it and even like connect with the professors like every their peers in the class to like again carry that like storytelling tradition kind of oral traditions forward and like did you guys practice a lot of that in the language classes i think that yeah i want to say yes um but in the context of learning the language for example so for example certain phrases that are for certain things um there's a story behind why why it is that i let's even use the blackfoot name for calgary as an example um Mokinsis or the the area um it just it means elbow and it's because of where the bow river meets the elbow river and i'm not qualified to tell the whole story i'll just note that but yeah if you even if you read the extended land land acknowledgement from ufc it mentions it's like everything kind of has like a story attached to it uh yeah i mean it's kind of hard to explain (laughs) without um diving into a language lesson but (laughs) yeah i think that they're they're very descriptive languages korean korean stony both are very descriptive languages in which oftentimes the word for something describes what it is instead of just being an independent word for something if that makes sense yeah because western words are most of them are just words we have some descriptive (laughs) yeah so an example would be in stony the word for millionaire which i'm not going to try and pronounce um just means one one who has nothing to want like one yeah so that's i think that's a strong example of something descriptive yeah was there like a favorite memory you had in the class or anything favorite about that Uh, the storytelling honestly um 
I think was really, uh, in, yeah, in both classes was really enriching for my learning and for other students' learning. Um, we did some pretty fun projects. In both classes, we had to create our own end-of-the-year project, which was a lot of fun to create. So in Cree, my friend and I just did this little skit where we were talking to each other, and um, we got to put a little bit of humor into it, which was awesome. And then, yeah, in Stony, um, another friend and I basically did the same thing, but talking about winter. And yeah, it's just, it's a lot of fun. Um, I would highly recommend the Indigenous language courses here. I think you said you did some storytelling and like a big project, but did you like participate in any ceremonies or drumming? No, so I, like it's just not the space, like it's a classroom. I think that participating in ceremony is, like it's very sacred. It's, it's you know, uh, it's not, you can't just show up, right? But there were stories connected to certain ceremonial practices but yeah it's just you know not not an appropriate setting to be uh, doing something like that from like your thesis to your research assistant position to your language courses I guess like if you were to reflect on your learnings what are like some of like the most like key learnings that you've kind of just like they just pop out at you or they really sit you know sit with you the first one that popped up would be the importance of relationship in indigenizing research as a whole and prioritizing relationship. Oftentimes, there's this big disconnect between participants and the researcher within Western research practices, where the participant comes, participates in the research, however that looks like, or the researcher goes to the participant. Um, extracts knowledge and then leaves and the participant never hears from them again. But indigenous-based research, indigenist research, is focused very heavily on prioritizing relationship and connection to community. And how I would kind of explain that is it's an attempt to take away the exploitative nature of research. I love research. I think that it's amazing um, for so many different reasons. I, I don't need to really justify that, but um, research can fall into exploitative territory extremely quickly, especially when working with indigenous communities, because indigenous communities have been the have been have been burdened with this influx of researchers coming in, extracting knowledge, leaving, coming in, um, using people to go, get ahead in their research and then leaving and never speaking again. Indigenous peoples have been the subject of, have just been research subjects, have been this other, this thing to observe and write about and publish as if Indigenous peoples are a foreign body. Instead of this reciprocal, respectful engagement with one another. I've read a couple articles about like, I guess like indigenous peoples and their like contributions and like in sport and stuff and a lot of the articles that I read at the end are always like when we do the research we're we're working with the community not on the community and that when the research is done like when we find the findings we implement that back into the community so it's kind of like like you said that reciprocal type of relationship absolutely and I think yeah 
If I were to give anything to look out for, it's um, indigenous involvement in dissemination, if that makes sense, because it's really easy as a researcher to be like, yep, we did the consultation, we spoke to them once, checked it off, so it's ethical, and I'm telling you that it's ethical because I did it. Um, whereas the community has no voice. The community can't say, actually, we were really taken advantage of and made to feel very uncomfortable and we don't feel like we were represented accurately. So I think that's also something to kind of look out for. Better and informed research m practices. Oh, that makes sense. So yeah, one last question before we wrap up the episode for today. As non-Indigenous undergraduate students, as here we're sitting, um, what efforts do you think we could work toward reconciliation? I think there's a lot to be done. Self-education is important. You know, it's hard to say, use the excuse, I just don't know where to look because Google is free. As a University of Calgary undergraduate student, you have access to the UFC library collections. There are instructors you could reach out to, you can reach out to the Faculty of Arts in the Department of International Indigenous Studies to some instructors asking for resources. There's so much to learn and it's not Indigenous peoples' jobs to educate non-Indigenous peoples on what happened. It's the responsibility of non-Indigenous peoples to um, take ownership and um, access the resources that do exist and get involved with um, there's a ton of initiatives, there's a ton of volunteer opportunities. Um, you can, there's so many people you can reach out to. I'd recommend going and taking a look at the Atapatope strategy. So UCalgary has a super informative Indigenous strategy page that's super accessible to look at. And there are opportunities to get involved. Additionally, I th believe they have a course on like the U of C mini courses software that students can take. Uh, that's free for students, so I'd recommend that. Yeah, just getting involved, um, education. If you have access to books that you can read, um, there's tons of amazing Indigenous authors that have spelled out pretty clearly what the situation is. Um, yeah. Adding on to, like, I guess your research work, how can we kind of like prevent the white savior complex from occurring and promoting collaboration between the two groups rather than, let's say, going into an indigenous community to save the community? I think there's a couple different answers to this. I'm not a development studies major or expert, but what I will say is there's a lot of deficit focused research that's performed that simply focuses on the deficits of indigenous communities, what's wrong, painting communities at, yeah, as this hub that needs to be saved. And I think focusing on strengths-based and community-driven, like what, what the community needs really, what the strengths of the community are is important for moving forward. I think, yeah, just building, it comes right back to relationships. So building relationships with community. If there's a relationship with the community um, that's built on trust and ethical engagement, then there is a safe space created in which um, Indigenous communities are able to speak on what their needs are um, or ask, say, could we do this project um, or there's this problem that exists that we want to look at or 
Um, we want to get resources to implement XYZ initiative, whatever it may be. Um, relationships is like the underlying focus of, of all this. It's a tough question. I think I would want to highlight the urgency of promoting relationship and ethical engagement with one another in the sphere of not only research, but our everyday lives as a whole. And people, you know, may say, I just, I don't want to do anything wrong, but it's taking on this attitude of being a guest. When you visit any another person's home and they say, say you don't take off your shoes in your house and somebody's like, please take off your shoes in my house you would you would take off your shoes in their house it's just about being respectful and approaching engagement with an understanding of the history and the legacy of colonialism how that exists and understanding that really good work takes time to build good relationships take time to build but it's important to achieving um, a more ethical and a more meaningful result I agree. Like taking your time rather than rushing, right? Yeah. We want to thank CJSW, the Indigenous Global and Local Health Office, Grandmother's Lodge, the UCREATE team, and our editor, Atia, for helping us with this podcast. Keep a lookout for the next episodes, and until then, stay warm.